At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We're glad you're here as we turn to the book of Genesis for our newest series, Family, Why Bother? In the pages of Genesis, we'll discover all kinds of hurting relationships that prove families have been dysfunctional from the very beginning. Join us as we uncover the only one who can renew and restore our broken families. All right, well, let's continue in worship as we open the scriptures together. You guys remember that we are in the book of Genesis. If you have a Bible and want to follow along, Genesis is the first book, the beginning. Um, And we're in chapter 4. We're going to look at especially verses 1 through 9, but really have all of chapter 4 in view. Uh, And you remember that we're kind of studying the book of Genesis through the lens of family and especially focusing on some of the different family dynamics as we work our way through it. Last week, we looked at Adam and Eve. This week, obviously, these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Uh, Next week, Abraham and Sarah and so forth. So some really interesting uh, relational experiences and a chance for us to look at our own lives, look at our own relationships and count the blessing of family Uh, but also come to grips with the brokenness of family and how the gospel speaks into those things. So Genesis chapter 4 is where we're at this morning, uh, one of the earliest chapters in the Bible and the first indication of a very important topic in our world today, domestic violence. So it's an incredibly tragic, uh, but there is, as always, uh, in Scripture and with the gospel, a redemptive corner that's eventually going to be turned in Jesus. So we'll get there too. But right now, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and Eve conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, Eve bore Cain's brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The last couple of years, my two sons have really gotten into video games. Their grandparents have a Nintendo Wii. Their cousin has a Nintendo Switch. At their school, friends tell them about Playstations and Xboxes. At home, they play different games on the iPad, and as they've begun to be familiar with all of these different ways of playing video games, and we've talked about them, they've asked me the question, Dad, did you have a Switch growing up? Did you play on the iPad growing up? 
And it's fun because I get to do one of those, well, kids, back in my day. So recently I was telling them about all the gaming systems I had in chronological order throughout the years. And so I told them about the first console I had, the Nintendo NES, 1988, 1987. My older brothers had one, and a short time after that, I was able to start playing myself. And here it is. Many of you remember this glorious gray box. And if you played one of these, one thing about it you may also remember is the reset button. If you look over there to the left, just beside the power button is the reset button. And it's interesting to me that they even had a reset button, like we could have just turned the game off and then turned it back on by pressing the power button twice really quick. But for whatever reason, they specifically installed a reset button. So if you're playing Super Mario 3 or Mega Man or Battletoads and you just can't get past the boss bad guy at the end of the level, you keep losing all your lives, hey, just press the reset button. If Mario just keeps missing the mushroom and Bowser keeps smashing you, hey, no big deal, just press reset. Just start over. It's kind of a satisfying way of getting back at the bad guy. Like, oh yeah, you think you can keep killing me? I'll just keep hitting reset. Well, in Genesis chapter 4, humanity is, in a way, getting a new start, a reset. After giving in to temptation, after sinning against God, after getting banned from the garden in Genesis 3, we immediately find out in Genesis 4 verse 1 that Eve gives birth. Adam and Eve have two boys named Cain and Abel, and we're going to find out what happens when humanity presses reset. Yeah, we screwed up. Yeah, we brought sin into the world. But what would happen if we could press reset? What would happen if we could get a new start? In Genesis 3, the husband and wife don't follow through on God's purpose for them. But maybe this new duo, maybe this set of brothers, maybe with this reset, their experience will redeem humanity. However, tragically, what we find out is that the divisive power of sin is passed on from one generation to the next. We saw last week through the experience of Adam and Eve how sin separates us from God and sin separates us from one another. And this week, in the very next chapter, we only see much of the, much of the same. The destructive, divisive power of sin is passed from one generation to the next, and simply hitting reset doesn't work. So we're going to walk through these verses and try to diagnose what's gone wrong, especially in the life of Cain, the older of the two sons. Cain is pretty clearly the central figure in chapter 4. If we had read the rest of the chapter, we would have seen what plays out in Cain's descendants' lives, his legacy. So what's going on in Cain's life, and how can he be a warning to us. Well, the first thing that we can diagnose, the first thing that we see in Cain is faithless obedience. Faithless obedience. Now, you may be thinking, that's weird. Shouldn't it be faithful obedience and faithless disobedience? But I don't think so. What we can see in Cain is faithless obedience. Let's look at these verses again, and I'll explain. So it says, starting in verse 3, 
that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought to the Lord of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So we had learned in the previous verses that Cain is a farmer of crops and Abel is a farmer of sheep. And here we see that they each make an offering from their harvest to the Lord. We don't know where they would have learned such a sacrificial practice. Presumably God had taught Adam and Eve to do such things and then Adam and Eve passed on this custom to their children. But both sons make this offering. From the Old Testament later on, we learn that such sacrifices were a way of expressing thanks to God. They were ways of expressing dependence upon God too. Not unlike when we make financial contributions here at church. But it's a religious ritual. It's a financial sacrifice of spiritual significance. And both boys carry this ritual out. They didn't have financial currency at the time, so they offer what resources they had. For Cain, it was the fruit of the earth, and Abel, it was a portion of his sheep. But each of them obeys this religious duty. Each of them practices this spiritual discipline. But one is accepted, and the other is not. Verse 5, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. Now, many people have tried to understand this by saying, well, there must have been some difference in their sacrifice. Like Abel offered the meat of an animal and meat is more expensive than vegetables. So God accepted Abel's sheep and he rejected Cain's veggies. Others have said, well, Abel gave the firstborn of his flock from the fat portions, so his sacrifice must have been qualitatively better. In other words, what these interpreters have tried to do is say that Cain wasn't really obeying here. His sacrifice was deficient. Abel's sacrifice was better. That's why Abel's was accepted and Cain's was rejected. But for many reasons, I think those interpretations are wrong. Nowhere in the Bible is there good evidence that Cain's sacrifice was less worthy than Abel's. Instead, what we find out is that the problem wasn't with Cain's sacrifice and the problem wasn't with Cain's action of making the sacrifice. The problem was with Cain himself. So listen to the writer of Hebrews, what he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. You may recall Hebrews chapter 11, the writer goes through all these different Old Testament figures, commending them all for their faith. Well, one of these figures, interestingly, is Abel. And here's what he says about Abel in chapter 11, verse 4 of Hebrews. He says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending Abel by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though Abel died, he still speaks. So you see, that was the difference between Cain and Abel. Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. In other words, Abel obediently made this sacrifice to God because he had an inner, sincere reliance upon God from his heart. Cain essentially made an identical sacrifice. Cain obeyed the tradition. Cain followed through on this custom, but he doesn't have faith. That's why I say it's faithless obedience. 
During his ministry, Jesus was especially prone to identify this sort of thing in the Pharisees. So if you've read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you're familiar with this group. The Pharisees show up throughout the Gospels in opposition to Jesus. So listen to what Jesus says about them in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. He goes on, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So on the outside, the Pharisees look the part. They obediently pulled all the religious levers and appear sincerely religious. But on the inside, where you can't see, they are full of greed and selfishness. Jesus says, outwardly, they appear to everyone as beautifully, spiritually obedient to God. But on the inside, there's death like a dolled up coffin. Outwardly they're obedient, but inside there's no faith, just like Cain. It's faithless obedience. So on this point, Cain here is a strong warning to many of us. Most of us here are church-going people. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here at church. And most of us here are God-fearing people. And so many of us obediently follow through on different religious customs, going to church, giving to the offering, taking part in the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've even been baptized. There's many other spiritual activities we comply with. But in all of our activity, in all of our obedience, we must give careful attention to our hearts. Maybe it's easy for you to obey a lot of the rules, but what is the state of your heart? Maybe it's easy for you to outwardly act Christian. But what's going on inside of you? Is there a deep awareness that you are desperately broken? Is there a sincere reliance upon God and His grace? Is there a genuine longing to be satisfied in God and in Him alone? Or is it for you just a religious show? Is it a spirituality like Cain, like the Pharisees, that's just a conformity to the traditions with no heart transformation, no faith? Now, what we see next is that God gives Cain a chance to see and own his faithlessness. God confronts Cain about this issue, but what we found out, sadly, is that Cain is not only faithlessly obedient, he is also absent humility. So this is another part of his condition that we must consider. He is absent humility. So the two boys have offered their sacrifices. God rejects Cain and his offering. Then in the middle of verse 5, picks it back up. It says, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord then said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So in other words, God simply says here, Cain, I am just, and I have judged you faithless, and thus your sacrifice unworthy. If you did well, you'd be accepted. If you do not do well, sin will destroy you. That's the basis of my rejecting your sacrifice. That's the basis of my judgment. If you did well, you'd be accepted. If you do not, sin will destroy you. So this is Cain's chance. This is Cain's opportunity to repent. He's confronted by God. He's called out by God for his faithless obedience. God says, hey, you've got no one to blame but yourself. I do not reject you because I'm some arbitrary deity. I'm rejecting you because there's something going on in your heart that you need to own and you need to surrender. So again, this is Cain's chance. It's his chance to repent. It's his chance to tell the truth about what's going on inside of him. God tells Cain the truth about Cain, but he doesn't want to hear it. He doesn't have the humility to hear it. He is absent humility. Instead, Cain is angry, it says. In other words, Cain thinks that God's judgment about him, God's rejection of him, is wrong. That's what anger relates to. We get angry when we perceive an injustice has happened. It's wrong that a bully picks on your kid at school, so you do something about it. It's wrong when your rival team cheats at the game, so you speak up and you let them know about it. That's what anger is good for. It motivates us to stand up, to speak up in the face of injustice. But Cain is angry about God. Cain is angry at God, and he's angry about what God has said about him. Cain angrily thinks, I know me better than God knows me. I can judge myself better than God can judge myself. He's wrong. It's unjust that he rejects me. I'm not the one that needs to change. God needs to change. That, I think, is a fair description of what's going on here. Cain lacks the humility to hear God's judgment and adjust his life accordingly. Instead, he angrily resists God's judgment And as we'll see, takes it out on his brother. So brothers and sisters, how are we doing when we're being called out? How are you doing when you are confronted by God with how you're living? Do we have the humility to be open, to listen? Do we have the humility to look at ourselves? Do we have the humbleness to reflect on ourselves? Or do we close up? Do we get in the defensive posture and automatically push back against whoever's critiquing us? This happened last week in Genesis chapter 3. It happens here in Genesis 4. Previously, God confronted Adam and Eve for their sin. Adam plays the blamer, pointing the finger at God and Eve. Eve plays the victim, pointing the finger at the serpent. And now here, God confronts Cain for his sin. And Cain, as we'll see, is going to play the rager. He defends himself by attacking Abel. And the divisive power of sin is passed from one generation to the next because they were absent humility. So church, maybe you feel God confronting you through 
something you hear in a sermon, or maybe God is calling you out through a Christian friend speaking into your life, or maybe it's just your conscience. God pricking your conscience about something you're doing, about the way you're living. Well, friends, let's cultivate the humility to listen when we're called out, when we're confronted. But for Cain, as his story progresses, his condition only worsens, sadly, from faithless obedience to absent humility, finally, it's murderous rage. His relationship with God is not one of sincere faith, and he doesn't have the humility to be corrected on that, and this leads to a complete ruining of his relationship with his brother Abel through murderous rage. So let's look once more at verse 8. God has rejected Cain and his offering. Cain rejects God and his judgment about him. And now Cain is going to reject Abel. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. So Cain's resistance and resentment towards God turns into bitterness towards Abel. Just like his father Adam in the previous chapter, instead of owning his failure and taking his shame to God, Cain tries to cover up tries to cover his shame with the rager. The thought process seems to be that Abel is making me look bad. The righteousness of Abel's life is shining light onto my sin and shame. But instead of repenting of my sin and surrendering my shame to God, I'll just eliminate the one who's making me feel shame, Abel. And so again, in this terribly tragic way, this truth shines through. When our relationship with God is broken, our relationship with people becomes broken. Cain cannot rightly love his brother because he doesn't sincerely love God. Verse 9, there's this memorable and haunting line. God approaches Cain after the murder, and it says, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So can't you hear the audacity there? Cain asking that question to God, am I my brother's keeper? In other words, don't ask me. I'm not responsible for him. So Cain is completely detached. He feels nothing. This is the peak of his devolution. He doesn't just have an unhealthy relationship with Abel. He ended his relationship with Abel. He ended Abel altogether, and he owns None of it. Just like his father Adam, he's covering up with the fig leaf. Just like his father Adam, he's trying to hide from the presence of God. Cain refuses to expose himself. Cain refuses to be vulnerable. He refuses to be honest about what's going on in his heart and what's going on in his life. And it curses his family tree. The entire rest of Genesis chapter 4 is the writer sharing about Cain's descendants, and it is not pretty. Generation after generation, there's brokenness, adultery, polygamy, arrogance. They hit reset again and again and again, but it is the same result again and again and again. So this painful chapter is a powerful lesson about how the divisive power of sin is passed 
from one generation to the next. As it turns out, broken people give birth to broken people. And we need more than a simple reset. We need God-accomplished redemption. We need more than a redo. We need God to do what we cannot do. And that is the gospel of Jesus. In Christ, God has done what we constantly fail to do. Jesus lived the life that Adam should have lived. Jesus lived the life that Cain should have lived. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived. He lived a life of perfect love, courage, strength, joy. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And then he died the death that we should have died. Jesus didn't so much make offerings to God. He was the offering to God, taking upon himself our sin and our shame on the cross. And then in this new Genesis, this new creation way, Jesus rose from the grave, just the beginning of the complete renewal of all things. This is the gospel. God has done what we and our ancestors could not do, accomplishing salvation for all who trust in Him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the second Adam. The first Adam brought sin and death into the world. The second Adam brings grace and life into the world. Jesus, the second Adam, creates, as it were, a second humanity, a new humanity, a totally renewed creation, not just a simple reset. So this morning is a great day for us to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Because by eating the bread and drinking the cup, we are together saying that we want to be marked by Christ. We want to be marked by the humility of Christ. We want to be marked by the sacrificial love of Christ. We want to be marked by Him. And we want our children to be marked by Him. And we want our children's children to be marked by Him. The power of sin is like a tidal wave that sweeps over generation after generation after generation. And the only thing that can hold the tide is the cross of Christ. The only thing that can overcome the generational power of sin is Jesus' blood. That is the gospel and that is what we are marking ourselves with today. And through prayer and through teaching and through God's grace, may our children be marked by the broken body and shed blood of Christ as well. And I encourage you to bring to mind the generational sins that have impacted your family tree. What are the ways that sin has woven its way through your family line one generation to the next? How has brokenness been passed down from grandparent to parent? to grandchild. Maybe it's alcoholism. Maybe it's chronic anxiety. Maybe it's anger and rage. Maybe it was abuse. Maybe it was divorce. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, this morning as we reflect on the tragedy of Abel's death and this vivid picture of the power of sin, we also remember the death of your son, the Lord Jesus, and how it is through the cross that sin's power is undone. Father, we thank you for this new genesis, this new generation, this new family that you are creating by the power of the gospel through your spirit that is the church. Father, I pray here that we could experience life redeemed, brother, sister, mother, father, friend, child. God, make us who we are to be, the family of God. And we pray for each one of our families. It's terrifying to think some of the ways that sin has been passed down one generation to the next. Abuse, addiction, separation, abandonment, loss, death, sickness. We come before you humbled, but we come before you hopeful that the cross of Jesus could interrupt the power of sin as it sweeps across the generations. And we pray, God, for a new legacy for each family here, that you would break the power of sin in our lives, in our children's lives, in their children's lives, for decades, for centuries to come until the end. Do a new thing, God, here in each one of our hearts and help us live before you open about the state of our hearts, about the state of our lives. Help us live in community before one another, open to receive critique, to share our shame, be honest about our sin. Do that kind of thing in us and we will continue to celebrate the victorious Savior. It's in his name we pray and we continue to sing. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.